are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week you'll hear a conversation that I have with uh, Sophie, and Sophie lives in the UK, well specifically, Sophie lives in Stoke-on-Trent, and um, Sophie has an eating disorder and is also an adult, and what happened is embarking on uh, getting treatment for her eating disorder, Sophie discovered that in the Stoke-on-Trent area, there's absolutely no funding for eating disorder treatment for adults under the NHS. So it's not just like there's only a little bit of funding, or it's not very good, there's just no funding at all, there's no treatment. Um, If she'd lived 30 minutes down the road, then there was funding and there was treatment, but in the Newcastle underlying area, in the Stoke-on-Trent area, there's no treatment. So it pretty much meant that she was unable to get treatment. Um, so Sophie decided to do something about that. She didn't think that that was okay. It's not really, is it? Um, so Sophie contacted the local MP and well, I'll tell you what, I'll just let her tell you the rest of the story. Here's Sophie. I'm Sophie and essentially I got anorexia when I was 10 years old. Um, I'm now 25 and I have had, I guess, a few impatient days when I was younger. And then um, things, are, I guess, got a bit more interesting when I met the adult services, shall we say. Um, and I guess um, I've kind of got two hats in that I went to medical school as well. Um, so I am a trained doctor and currently working as a foundation doctor. So essentially what happened was through medical school, I moved to an area called Stoke-on-Trent. And when I got here, the first few years after, by this point, I'd sort of had it by about 10 years. So I... um, sort of accepted that this will be my life forever so eating minestrone soup every day for life I'll deal with that I think you know I'll keep Heinz soup in industry at that time of my life um but what then happened is in my fourth year no my third year of medical school I um I tried to get help, so I went to the GP, and I thought, I can't live like this forever. It's going to hinder my career. It's going to hinder my life. Um, And I went and got a referral just to the local sort of wellbeing service, it's called, which is counselling service. Again, had to wait about three or four months just to get um, an assessment. And then... I got told that because my BMI was above 14.5, that meant I can't have treatment. So I'm sure you hear that a lot. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, But I didn't really understand at the time what that actually meant logistically um, with respect to um, the funding locally. And it was only when I actually became a fourth year medical student, I actually got placed on the eating disorders ward 
um, that is based in Stafford. Um, and that's where I met the lead psychiatrist uh, who sort of was able to tell that I had um, issues myself. Um, following that, it was agreed that I could have treatment. But again, it took a year before I sort of got that treatment. Um, and then I, I started that. But unfortunately, through medical school, you have to go away on an elective. So because I went on my elective to, in order to graduate, it then meant that I lost my treatment. I since sort of found out a lot about um, the funding locally and what what is happening. So essentially... Um, what it came down to, I realised, is that people who live in Stoke-on-Trent and Newcastle-Underlime are not entitled to get treatment for an eating disorder if you're an adult. Um, the only sort of condition on that is if you are a medical student, then there's a local agreement uh, that you are allowed to get treatment and that's just made with the university. So having spent years, and overall I've spent three years on waiting lists, waiting for treatment, um, even though I was one of those medical students back then. So I actually consider myself, um, you know, very lucky that I actually, even though I had to wait, that I actually was able to get some treatment. Um, however, it also made me realise that firstly, I did have to wait so long to get treatment. But secondly, that all that time that I was waiting for treatment, my despair was, my despair level was going up. And thinking that there could be anyone else in the world feeling the same and not being able to get help. It just destroyed me. Hmm. Um, you know, so I decided that I need to do something about it. And essentially I wrote to my local um, MP. Mm -hmm. He's called Paul Farrelly and he's just been brilliant. Um, he agreed that he'd meet me and I then went and met him and a gentleman called David Rogers. Uh -huh. And I took along a PowerPoint presentation with some of the beat, beat statistics on all about like how much training doctors get, mm -hmm. how much it costs in terms of an inpatient treatment versus an outpatient treatment. And I told them again that from my knowledge, there is no funding for adults. So the initial response was one of disbelief. They couldn't see that it would be possible to not give treatment to people with an eating disorder. But they agreed that they'd look into it for me. Mm -hmm. And not that I wanted to be right, but I did in order to sort of prove my point. 
um well that's what happened and so Paul Farrelly wrote to um the head of what's called the CCG so they're the body um for those not in the UK that essentially they comprise of usually doctors and nurse and they get to decide how to spend the budget Mm -hmm. so if you say had a hundred thousand pounds and you've got all these medical conditions which you need to treat you decide how much you're gonna say spend on diabetes how much you're gonna spend on mental health that sort of thing so he wrote to the head of um, the CCGs because locally there's six. So what should happen is that you should get equal funding for certain things throughout all six, ideally. So in the other, in four of them, there is treatment for adults, but in the two that I mentioned, Newcastle, Underlyme and Stoke, there is absolutely no money at all for adults. So so that's just the reason it's just that's why you can't get treatment if you're an adult in that area yeah. because there's just no money for it. There's literally no money to get treatment at all. And even if you had money to pay yourself, there's I've struggled to find anyone privately as well in the local area. So you sort of end up in a position where you just can't get help. Um, and as you know, it's a very difficult illness to get out of, especially if you're on your own. So the help is definitely needed. And so, well, so so what's what's the plan now? So from that, um, he realised that what I'd said was correct in that there was no money. So he then took that to Parliament. Um, and actually raised some questions in Parliament about the issue. Um, I'd also highlighted him to a case um, of an ombudsman inquiry about a girl called Avril Hart. Um, I don't know if you've come across that at all. Why don't you, just for anybody that hasn't, why don't you explain it? Okay, so was back in 2011 um, there was a girl called Avril Hart and she was admitted to hospital um, due to her anorexia where she stayed for 11 months but when she was discharged her health care was transferred to a different unit um, as she was going to start university but when she got there there'd been miscommunication between the services and she had no follow-up for the first kind of, I think it was the first couple of months. She then saw the GP and the GP had been asked to weigh her every week and do her bloods and things like that. Um, But though they did initially, they thought that the the psychiatric team were going to do that. So they told her not to come for another month. So this is now um, sort of about 
three months since she got discharged when her dad went to see her and noticed that she'd lost significant weight and called up um, to try and get her help and it was arranged that she would get some treatment or at least be seen. However, she cancelled that appointment and the next day she was found in her accommodation, um, severely ill and taken to hospital. And in the hospital, they didn't recognise that she had low blood sugars. Um, And as a result, she essentially got brain injury and died. So the dad of the girl wrote a big report. Well, he didn't himself write it. He wrote to the people, which meant that they had to investigate um, the case because of all these failings in care. So I highlighted that to to Paul and he's taken it very seriously since because, you know, that's a situation where you've got people going to university and they there is a care service there. So what if you have no option of care? Then how many more Avril hearts are there going to be? And that was what my worry was. So as a result of all of this... Um, it was agreed by the local CCGs that they would fund a service. Um, and I've since been involved in meeting with some of the local psychiatrists in order to develop a business plan for what that will look like. Mm-hmm. So we've had a few meetings enough. The issue that we've come to, though, is the money for it. Of course, of course it is. Absolutely. So they, what they've said is that they have a commissioning intention. It doesn't seem like they're willing to sign off on the business case at the minute. So we're in limbo where they're not committing 100%. Right. And so if anybody is listening, and I know that there are lots of people listening in the UK, um, and... They might be moved to want to try and help in some way. Is there anything that they can do? Um, well, essentially, I there's a few factors, I guess, um, why I wanted to talk about this. So one of them is that if there was anybody else in Stoke-on-Trent or Newcastle Wonderline, it'd be really helpful if you felt able to come forward in terms of contacting me um, so that I can grow a body of evidence of why there's more than just me who needs treatment because currently you know I'm trying to shout as loud as I can about it but there's only me that is shouting about it so I have to have a sort of legitimate reason Um, then I think what I spoke to you about before was I am in a position where potentially if this did manage to go ahead that I could help write and produce what sort of treatments what is going to look like now I know that you are um, an expert by experience and I think you can't get better um, 
in that respect. So what I don't want to do is I don't want to produce a treatment, an outpatient treatment centre just based on statistics or nice guidance. So if there's anyone that has any suggestions as to what they have found helpful in their treatment, for example, how many times do you see a dietitian in your treatment and how long are those sessions? Like, did you find that helpful? Or just any sort of things that you could recommend. Right, so you're um, asking people to get in contact if they'd like to give their input. Yeah, I think that would be really helpful if people wouldn't mind. Yeah, I'm sure that... Are you open to... Um parents and carers of people who are in treatment also being involved yeah absolutely because they often have really good insight sometimes Um, it's sometimes just somebody who's been able to watch someone go through treatment has a really good idea of what was helpful and what wasn't helpful yeah I think they offer a different perspective as well because obviously the individual whilst they're going through it will see probably it's quite a negative experience sometimes when, for example, with family-based treatment, they may feel it was negative at the time because they're having to do things like eat, you know, eat, which is going to be a struggle. Whereas the, the end outcome of that may be that they got well. So the family sort of being able to talk about that would definitely be, be really good. Um, so I'm going to try and start a petition um one of the government partitions and see if that gets accepted and see then if I can get some signatures and the purpose being just to try and enforce uh that we need treatment in this local area right and if people do want to if people want to get involved with this uh, how do they contact you um, so I've got my email address, so it's sophie, so S-O-P-H-I-E dot burnage, so B-U-R-N-A-G-E at gmail.com. So if you contact me on there, then I'll get that email. Brilliant. Thank you. And I'll put that in the show notes, Sophie. Perfect. Thank you for such great and determined work. And um, hopefully if you can make change in your area, then that might be helpful for people that are struggling and trying to make change in other areas as well. Definitely. Because one of the other things that Paul has done is he's written to all the CCGs. So there's 191 CCGs in the country. And he's requested information about how much money they spend. Do they have a service? And from what we see, there's only 78% of the CCGs actually said that they fund for adults. So I'm not alone in this. So I'd really recommend that if you're part of that population of people that don't have treatment, it is well worth speaking to your MP and doing what you can. Because if you have the sort of same attitude as me, that, you know, it's bad enough you having that eating disorder but I just can't stand thinking about other people having to suffer.
Well, I have to admit, this is a little bit, you can't make this sort of thing up. You get, you, you have an illness and then you find that there's no treatment and you actually have to basically go and create the treatment if you want to have treatment. Um, but anyway, it does need doing, doesn't it? And so thank you to Sophie for getting on and pioneering this. Um, so this isn't just happening in the UK. Eating disorders are underfunded all over the place. And we still can't, just don't really get what this is. Anorexia nervosa alone yields the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. That's a, a death rate, which is six times that compared to the general population. Um, and even in eating disorders that don't result in somebody dying, they frequently have uh, a sort of chronic um, presentation so high relapse rate, and there's often complications such as organ damage, cardiac abnormalities, people often die of heart attacks from eating disorders, brain impairment, and of course, osteoporosis and other such um, bone impairments. So I think that the research says, and I've got a study, I'll put it in the show notes, that up to 97% of people with eating disorders report significant significant functional impairment, which is comparable absolutely to autism and schizophrenia. But compared to autism and schizophrenia, there's next to no funding for people with eating disorders. I think it was in 2015, um, it was shown that in the US, that for per affected individual, people with eating disorders, about 73 cents was spent on them. And in contrast, if you have autism, then you get a whopping 58 dollars and 65 cents and in schizophrenia it's 86 dollars and 97 cents and while those numbers themselves is basically 90 bucks per affected individual with schizophrenia compare that to less than a dollar per individual for a person that has an eating disorder you've really got to wonder why that is i some so this is the cynical side of me coming out but who can not look at those figures and not be cynical? I just wonder if it's this, still this perception that eating disorders affect women. I just think that there's some of that in there. Eating disorders don't affect men, so therefore why would we fund it? It's a bit like I was listening to something the other day that sort of the um, the the money spent on finding treatments for erectile dysfunction is just through the roof compared to, say, finding treatments for things that supposedly only affect women, which is really minimal. Actually, this was in comparison to finding treatments for things like endometriosis, which absolutely, you know, you have to have a womb to have endometriosis, but the funding is just abysmal. And it's a chronic pain with endometriosis compared to, well, just, um, yes, the inconvenience of erectile dysfunction, I get it, but the point being that one of those affects men and the other ones affects women, and guess which one is massively underfunded. And so we know that eating disorders, at least I know, and I think a lot of you know that eating disorders affect men and women pretty much equally, but I don't think that that, I think the stereotype is that they just affect women, and I don't think that most people know that they affect men and women. And so I, I just... There's got to be something in there that why eating disorders are so underfunded. And I think there's also the stigma that this is something that people choose to have wrong with them, whereas schizophrenia or autism isn't. Anyway, we can all sort of draw up reasons as to why we think eating disorders are so underfunded. Um, The reality is that they are, and people like Sophie are doing something about it. 
so hats off and let's all step up and see if we can join in i've got in the show notes sophie's contact for those of you that like to get in touch with her and thanks for listening if you have any ideas around this subject of course as always email me info at tabithafra.com if you want to talk about something along these lines you are very welcome to come and do so thanks for listening cheers and until next time cheerio